There are so many changes happening in retail and e-commerce. Today, we're taking a deep dive into this topic. I'm delighted to welcome Charlie Cole. He's the chief digital officer of Tumi. It's a well-known luggage brand. In fact, I'm one of their customers. And he is also the global chief e-commerce officer of Samsonite, one of the largest luggage brands in the world and a brand that I'm sure everyone is familiar with. Charlie, tell us about Tumi and Samsonite and what you do. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not intuitive, but it, it makes sense when you kind of know that Samsonite's really grown by way of acquisitions. So Samsonite functions as a holding company similar to like a Procter & Gamble. And underneath the Samsonite banner, we have brands like Samsonite, eBags.com, Spec, et cetera. And when they acquired Tumi in 2016, that's when I came over and, and joined the corporation. And so my job is really to kind of drive a, a digital and e-commerce strategy across the holding company and around the world. Uh, we function in more than 100 countries. We have uh, brand websites and over 60 of them. So it's certainly a job that requires a little bit of cohesion. Charlie, Samsonite was founded in, I believe, 1910. Yeah. And, and I suspect that e-commerce wasn't around at that time. So obviously, Samsonite has, has gone through many transformations. And so give us a little bit more background about the company and the nature of the kind of transformation. It's really, uh, it serves as sort of a case study for how companies have had to evolve. And, and I've been really fortunate to be a part of it. Samsonite in its history was very much a wholesale-centric company. So I always say that they thought of their customers as Macy's and Nordstrom as opposed to Charlie and Michael. And from our perspective, that's kind of where I came in as, is really to kind of drive e-commerce. And part of my job is the kind of multi-brand wholesalers like the Macy's or Amazon's. But really the job that I, I, I'm most passionate about is driving our direct consumer business. Because I think in the modern day, having a one-to-one -one relationship with your customer as opposed to allowing you know, multi-brand retailers and middlemen to kind of drive that relationship for you is really important. So uh, I think that transformation of evolving from wholesale to kind of this hybrid company that includes a direct consumer capability has been the, the funnest evolution for me to be a part of. And what have been the steps or the process that you've gone through to drive that kind of transformation in such a very well-established organization? So the people were really first. And, and I think that that is where we've made the most positive impact. Uh, when I when I joined the Samsonite Corporation, the first thing that really matters in a transformation like this, and, and I don't mean to sound like a suck up, but it really is true, is sort of that CEO buy-in and CEO sponsorship. And so simply the creation of my role was a message to the organization that we were evolving. And then getting the right people in each region uh, around Asia and Europe, you know, I could tell you, you know, we hired Sheldon in Asia about a year or so ago, and just having him and having a great digital leader in each region was step one. And so we have seven or eight digital leaders around the world that have kind of driven the tone. I mean, I, I really rely on them to drive it operationally. And then as long as we're aligned strategically and from a vision perspective, all the way to the top. And, and, and now my CEO, Kyle, really kind of gives us free reign to drive the strategy. It's not a micromanaged organization. We're very decentralized by region. And to me, the first step for any transformation, it sounds a little cliche, but it does start with getting the right people in the right places. But it had to have buy-in from the entire organization. And that's what I give a lot of credit to my, to my boss to. Charlie, we have a question from Twitter that gets to the heart of a topic that I've wanted to talk with you about. And this is from Sal Rasa, who says, how do you leverage the customer experience for your revenue objectives to move beyond, and this is the key point, 
just a transactional exchange. How do you bring, how do you weave empathy into this? Because of course, historically for retailers, you know, you go to your corner store, she knows you, it's a relationship. How do you manage to do that now with e-commerce? Love this question. Uh, I think that the idea of moving beyond transaction is key to, to this idea of customer centricity and customer experience. And the thing that I always try to remind myself is the customer expectation and experience is an evolution. You know, uh, one of the things I say frequently, Michael, is this idea that five years ago, seven years ago, the idea of having to have everything in two days via the internet was insane, right? It, it wasn't really thought of. It wasn't a customer expectation. So I think for us, trying to be a part of that evolution and understanding that customer expectations are evolving is step one. And also, we have a very long transaction cycle. Like We build the greatest travel products on earth. And so if we do our job right from a manufacturing perspective, which we certainly do, I theoretically won't see you again for seven to 10 years. And so I think that idea of customer experience has to evolve over that amount of time. And so that puts a lot of pressure on us from a service after sales perspective or a customer service perspective. And, and I think that that makes our job a little bit more challenging, but frankly, it also causes us to be a heck of a lot more authentic with our customers. And so I think about Toomey, specifically the brand Toomey, they've been investing heavily in our customer service platform. We, we recently partnered with a, a group called Gladly, and it allows us to really have a one-to-one -one relationship with our consumers. And so a very small thing, Michael, if you were to call into Toomey and you were to talk to, uh, say, Cedric, if you call back, if Cedric's there, you're going to get Cedric again. Right, this idea of actually creating a relationship on a one-to-one -one basis because your relationship with the brand is going to be predicated on your relationship with our people. And so I think that that's a good example of where we understand that customer service and customer experience has to evolve beyond thinking of you as a transaction or a ticket number, but, but really thinking of you as an individual. You view that customer relationship as the full life cycle. And is that the, the foundation, could we say, for going beyond the transactional interaction into building a, a, a relationship? Yeah, I really do kind of harp on this idea of for years and years and years, when someone called into a customer service call center, you were a ticket, right? Like ticket number one, two, four, six, nine or whatever, and you have to solve this problem. And that literally dehumanizes someone. It, it makes it so you're having a relationship with a problem as opposed to a person. So I think if you kind of evolve beyond transaction and beyond these ideas of issues or tickets, and actually view a customer holistically in every single interaction wherever possible, it does give you that more warm one-to-one -one relationship because transactions are, are frankly the start of the journey. They're not the end. And I think if you think of that kind of idea in your company, you're going to have a much more genuine relationship with your, with your customers. How do you do that? How do you, how do you first off change the, the mindset to think of customers that way? Because it is different. It's, it's a different way of thinking, especially if you've grown up in a traditional retail environment. And then what's the kind of activities and data and interactions that you can drive online in order to understand whether or not you're achieving that goal? So I, I'm glad you, you mentioned data because it, it frankly is probably the most tactical but also most difficult part. Um, because if you are going to have a view of Michael as a full customer, I have to have a cohesive view of your purchases, your email open send click behavior, your customer service requests, your browsing requests. There's so many things that go into the identity of a customer. And so for us, we, we've made pretty heavy investments on that side and, and what is now known as this space called the customer data platform. 
Um, I, I'd like to think that Tumi was one of the first ones to, to really adopt this idea before it was even being called a customer data platform. Um, we installed a, a group called Agile One in 2016, right? So we immediately recognize the challenge of having a cohesive view. And, and that becomes the tactical part, right? And then when you get to the idea of, okay, now what? Now I know who Michael is. Now I know everything he's done. What do we do now? You can do a variety of things, right? So we do because uh, of an algorithmic-based targeting. So we try not to send people messages that are irrelevant. And so when we are sending, say, a message about women's backpacks, if you've done nothing in your history, both historically and recently, that would indicate that you're interested in, you don't get the email, right? So that's another very tactical thing around this idea of personalization and having a more one-to-one -one relationship with the customer. But now we start asking this question, and, and for me, it's, it's what I'm really passionate about and what we're working hard on is, how should we use that data to give you a better experience when you've already bought something? So when you call into the call center, we can have a good idea of here's what Michael's recently bought, here's what Michael's bought historically, but also here's what Michael has been looking at via email. And so we can have a good idea of what you wanna to talk to us about and we can give you much more context on if you have a warranty problem, if you have a, if you have a product question, you know, it gives our consumers, our, excuse me, our customer service agents much more information to frankly help you, right? So I, I would say simply, Michael, you know, start with it culturally, make a decision that you're going to be customer centric, tactically have a really good view of your customer data. And then from a more strategic perspective, make sure that you're actually using this data in a way to help the consumer regardless of if that means another transaction or not. I think you have to really think about what is the goal of every customer interaction as opposed to just driving sales through at a, at a ad nauseum. We have another question from Twitter, and this is from a former CXO Talk guest, uh, Dana Randall. So Dana asks, since digital transformation extends beyond e-commerce, what approaches do you find most effective to get buy-in when spinning, an, spinning up initiatives that impact other business divisions, such as store operations, product development, or customer service? Yeah, the, the concept of, of buy-in uh, lends, lends itself to a lot of, I guess, noise, right? Like I think you always talk about internal company silos or bureaucracy or politics. And I think those are all things that might be a little touchy to touch on in certain organizations, but at the same time, it's it's reality. And so in our case, uh, one of the first things that actually, when I was at Toomey, when I was being recruited at Toomey by Jerome Griffith, who eventually sold the company is now the CEO at Land's End. One of the first conversations he and I had was, I had no intention of joining the company if I was only compensated on digital revenue. And I think it starts there, right? Like you have to have alignment on initiatives because I have so many people that when they say they're the VP of e-commerce and you ask them, you know, what is your bonus based on? They're like, oh, e-commerce revenue. And, and I think that that is the start of a really problematic journey because if you don't have alignment with your offline partners and wholesale partners and customer service partners, you're going to do the wrong thing, right? If you are only compensated as the VP of e-commerce on e-commerce revenue, you're going to minimize the store locator. You're going to not focus on context. You're not going to focus on your wholesale partners. And, and I just think that that's where it starts. And so it might sound extremely obvious, but there are so many compensation plans that basically doom digital transformation at the start because people see this digital person or this e-commerce person as almost the enemy. So I think you have to really align that. And if you start there at that very kind of barbaric level of just how we all get paid, then once you're on the same level, people will see you as an ally. And if you can drive that organization where, in my case, probably the first year I was in this role, all I did was try to learn from my regional counterparts because they're really the ones that drive the business. But it would have been doomed in the start if we hadn't been aligned at a basic like 
amino acid level on the compensation side, which again, sounds obvious, but you see it very, very often where there's just a misalignment. Actually, you know, it's funny to me, uh, it doesn't sound obvious at all. I think it, well, yeah, I mean, from a common sense standpoint, definitely. But how do you, you know, let's drill into this a little bit more because how do, in an organization that is trying to drive revenue, which is all organizations, and the goal of e-commerce is to drive revenue, then how does one escape from having e-commerce revenue as your compensation metric? I would actually disagree on something, which is I think it starts with the idea of e-commerce can't just be about driving revenue. And look, I, I'm a capitalist. We're a publicly traded company. We are held to revenue standards. So I'm not trying to say that that's not a part of it. But for example, when you ask in your organization, hey, who's responsible for online to offline traffic? I think the e-commerce person has to raise their hand. But I think we have to be the one that is holding ourselves accountable for traffic as a company-wide goal as opposed to an e-commerce initiative. And one of the things that I've been, been known to say in the past is a great e-commerce site, like the best e-commerce site on earth is going to have a conversion rate of what? Five, 10 percent, maybe. And so that means 95 to 90 percent of your job is this idea of making that traffic as useful and as powerful and as relevant as possible. I mean, you have to just make a, your piece of the fact that people still go into stores and people still go into your wholesale partners. So I think it does start, Michael, with the idea of, yes, e-commerce revenue is a goal, but it's not the goal, right? We have to hold ourselves accountable to more metrics, such as how many people come to the store locator page, such as how are we tracking online to offline attribution? And there's a lot of ways to do that. And I think that is the e-commerce department's kind of job. Number one, we sort of live in the numbers on a daily basis. But number two, if you do make an effort to think of your digital strategy as cohesive, you will get organizational buy-in. But, but it takes with the idea of evolving beyond revenue. What are the other kinds of metrics beyond revenue that reflect the nature of the ongoing relationship with the customer, especially in your case, if you build, you know, I'm also, by the way, a Hartman customer. And so as, by the way, as a customer of... Hartman and to me, I'm listening to this very carefully. Uh, <laughs> so, but how do, how do you how do you drive that relationship beyond just revenue? When, as you said earlier, a person buys luggage, you know, they come into the store say once in seven years. Yeah, and, and this is where it comes back, and and you started the question, Michael, with metrics, right? And. I do believe, and, and I have a predisposition to numbers, it's kind of what I love, but I do believe that you have to have more measurements than this classic e-commerce formula of traffic, conversion rate, and average order value, right? Like that's great, like that is important, that is how you drive revenue and profitability, I, I get it. But we are constantly working with our partners to kind of understand how can we correlate whether or not we drove store traffic. So I talked about that. Um, Google and Facebook are now offering some pretty good options there where you can start to hold your advertising accountable in a more funnel, full funnel way. But then you start talking about this idea of the store locator. Like the store locator is such a powerful tool that people use, uh, particularly on mobile devices, where you can make correlations between advertising buys and what's happened on the store locator. And so ultimately what we end up talking about is this idea, this, this very ethereal idea of attribution, right? Top of funnel, bottom of funnel, mid funnel all of those various sources of traffic or people coming to your website should be treated differently, right? And, and so the idea is this, when, when you send out an advertisement and you were to walk, it's the equivalent of walking down the street 
stopping a random person and being like, hey, do you want a backpack right now? And of course, most of those people are like, imagine now I'm good on the backpack front. So your goal can't be transactional all the time. It might be a goal of time on site or visits per session or did they watch a video? And all of these goals have to be quantified and aligned with the traffic source because then you start to get into this idea of usability on the website. So I think it does start with aligning metrics for where the customer is in their journey. And the hard part there is having the technology that allows you to do so effectively and at scale. When we talk about this type of data, in, a, in effect, what you're doing is building up a two-dimensional representation of customer behavior, or, or let's put it this way, a wireframe diagram of points of customer behavior from which you are trying to construct a three-dimensional picture of that individual. Can you talk a little bit about how you make the leap from points of data to the human being for whom you must have understanding, caring, and empathy? Yeah, and it's tricky, right? Because you only know what you know. And I think there's also a meta over this conversation, Michael, which is consumers are rightfully concerned with how their data is being captured and used. And I think on a daily basis, that becomes a more relevant conversation. And so as you make those leaps, I think it's very important to remind yourself to not be presumptuous. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a, a very quick anecdote. We were in the process of a clienteling uh, uh, test. And the test was, on one side, we're going to have our stores use their little black books, what they had for years, and call customers. On another side, we were going to use our data out of Adagile 1 to programmatically decide who should be called about what. And we were in one of our stores in New York City, and I asked the store manager, like, who's your best customer? And he said, oh, it's Bob. You know, Bob probably spends $30,000 a year here. And sure enough, there's Bob. And, and I was like, great, you know, you should call Bob and talk to him about a women's, a women's backpack. And the store associate kind of looked at me like, well, why would I sell a guy a women's backpack? Sure enough, the data had showed that Bob had been opening emails about women's backpacks. He had been browsing the site on women's backpacks. And so when we talked to Bob, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm actually looking for a present for my mother. Now, I couldn't have got from data to present for mother, but I can use that context in a way to humanize the message I send to Bob. Like, hey, Bob, we're listening to you. We're trying to get you the right thing for what you're looking for. That's where I think you have to make those leaps, Michael, but you have to be very careful to not be presumptuous because just because my data shows something, it doesn't necessarily give you the full context. So I think you use data to map where the customer is in their journey. You try to give relevant messaging based on that but it's important to kind of avoid these leaps and jumps that some people make that, that frankly get a little too aggressive. How do you avoid it? It's the human, human nature is- side of caution. I would say err on the side of caution is important here because uh, I, you know, personally, uh, I've been in the market for, my wife and I were having a conversation last night about trying to find a frequent flyer ticket to Sydney. Um, we we're you know, I, I might be speaking at a conference there next year. And so if you looked at my Delta browsing session, I have been looking at Sydney, 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 and we've been trying to move around dates to find ones that we can use on miles so my, my wife and daughter can come with us. But frankly, I'm actually not that far down the buying journey yet. I, I haven't even made the decision where I'm going to purchase. So if Delta started hammering me with message saying like, buy a flight to Sydney, it's probably going to turn me off. You know what I mean? And so that's what I mean about kind of erring on the side of caution. Just like if Delta sent me something saying like, hey, do you want to set up a alert when Sydney frequent flyer miles drop, I'd be like, oh yeah, that'd be helpful. And so it's this idea of kind of erring on the side of caution and not treating your customers like, as to, you, to your point, as just a transaction. 
And we have another great question from Twitter. This is from Arsalan Khan, who is asking, how do you create a, it's a great question, how do you create a seamless channel from offline to online and vice versa? So I, I, I'm not going to be redundant. I, I do think compensation is important. Um, I do think personalization of message but is important. But I would also question uh, the word seamless a little bit, right? Because I do think it's important that you appreciate the channels as individual channels, but also as a cohesive company, right? And so when someone walks into the store, do they expect the exact same experience as somebody on a website? I would argue no, right? I would argue there actually is an idiosyncratic difference between the two. And so I think there are certain things that need to be consistent. Your brand point of view needs to be consistent. Your messaging needs to be consistent. And I'll say another thing, your pricing needs to be consistent. I think where you really break the customer journey, specifically with our Tumi, when I joined Tumi, um, Tumi was on sort of this dangerous journey of, hey, we need to make more money, have an online promotion. And it's a tried and true thing. You've seen brands hurt by doing this over and over and over again. And one of the first things we tried to do was align the promotional calendar between stores and websites. Now, look, that's really hard. Right? It's really hard to put that genie back in the bottle, but that's a small example of what I do think should be seamless. But then when you're in the store, you have such an opportunity to have a more tangible physical experience of opening the bags and playing with the bags and actually talking to another human being in an active way. So that's where I think you do need to let the channels live on their own. right? And, and I do want my store associates to feel comfortable sending someone to the website. And so this goes back to this idea of compensation. Do we give the store credit for someone that they sent to the website? How do you do that? So I think that this idea, and this was sort of a rambling answer, but this idea of making sure the brand experience is consistent, but allowing the channels themselves to live on their own is, is sort of an important dichotomy, which if you can find that balance, it's very, very powerful. On the topic of brand experience, to what extent do you think about brand and does that turn you into a marketer without tentacles into all of these different processes and parts of the company? One of the first hard lessons I learned in e-commerce is digital is not the company, right? I, I used to believe that if you followed what the analytics told you, and if you just did what we said we should do from a numerical perspective on e-commerce, then frankly, merchandising and branding be damned. And you know, I, I was frankly very young and very arrogant. And what I've learned is that digital is at service to the brand and at service to the product as opposed to the other way around. And, I, and it sounds a little bit, I don't know, idealistic, but it, I think it's an important thing to remind ourselves as digital leaders. Like I am there to support Victor, who's the creative director at Tumi, and, uh, Latte, who's at Samsonite Europe. And these people know so much more about the product than I ever will. And so we're at service to kind of support their mission. So to, to answer your question really simply, Michael, I think we should always be at service to our brands. Our job is to butt up against it. And, and, and you know, I always talk about this idea of guardrails. On one side, you have the brand. On one side, you have the product. Digital's in between. If I can widen them, if I can make our kind of message larger by giving feedback and telling what consumers are saying, that's a really powerful thing. But I never forget that you know, I'm working for our creative directors and for our product merchandisers as opposed to the other way around. Can you give us some practical examples of how those relationships work? Oh, I'll tell you my favorite Victor Sands story. Uh, so Victor Sands is the creative director at Toomey. And on like my first or second day, we were doing 
this orientation, right? It's a standard orientation that I think you do at any company where you bounce around and you meet people for 30 minutes. Like, oh, this is Gene, the merchandiser. This is Heather, the head of marketing, et cetera. And I met Victor in the Toomey showroom. And I'm kind of walking around with him and he's telling me a little bit about the history of Toomey and, and his, his role. And I point to these two bags that were just like both carry-on bags. I'm like, hey, Victor, why would I buy this one instead of this one? And he gave me the most elaborate, like, engineering level answer about weight, about durability, about technology, about functionality. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I've got to figure out how to put this in a digital experience. Like I have to take this five minute soliloquy that Victor just told me about and make it consumable to someone on a mobile phone. Right. And so I think that that's something that we forget as digital leaders at times, which I can look at the analytics and be reactive but how do I be generatively creative? And if you go and you spend time with the creative directors and with the product people, you will make your digital experience so much better than if you're just iterating on the analytics. And it sounds like this, this thing that's like not a big unlock, but ask yourself a question as a digital leader, when was the last time you talked with your creative director about the products they're creating? And if the answer is longer than a month, you, you should probably spend more time with the people that are actually making the stuff that's being consumed. So presumably then if you're not doing that, then you're perpetuating silos that have existed previously. I completely agree. And I would go one step farther. I think you're sort of tactically, slowly deteriorating your brand, right? Because if all you're doing is iterating on the analytics you have, those are reactive, right? You are not doing anything generative. You are not doing anything proactive. And look, I, I'm, I'm happy to say if you make a UI UX change on your cart and you pick up a tenth of a point of conversion, good for you but you still need to make sure that you know the next thing you're talking about and the next product you're going to have to sell, right? Because if you don't tell that product story well, all the tactics on earth for e-commerce and digital optimization or whatever phrase you want to use, they're worthless, right? And, and we need to remember that we're com completely at servitude to the products we create. Now, it's another way of saying I'm extremely lucky, right? Because between Samsonite and American Tourister and Toomey, I feel really confident telling you, Michael, we make the best travel products on earth. I've seen the innovation that's done in our, in our uh, factories in Hungary and Belgium. It's phenomenal. And so that gives me a leg up, but that leg up is worthless if I don't tell that story in a pragmatic way. So we have some questions and comments from Twitter. So first off, Dana Randall comes back and says that Charlie Cole is the definition of a change agent and has been extremely effective within his organization. And uh, I think that's clearly true. Thanks, Dana. Then another Seattle resident, uh, Buzz Brueggemann, asks a, a very tactical question, and I'll be listening closely to the answer to this one as well, which is, Charlie, have you cracked the code of advertising your brands on LinkedIn? We keep thinking that it's the perfect place if you understand a great vertical that your customers work in. So I'll, I'll give a really honest answer. Uh, the answer is no, we haven't cracked the code. And I think for us, um, LinkedIn has, from my opinion, one major shortcoming, which is the ability to sort of test small and learn is sort of tricky. Um, it's been a while since I've reached out to them, but you know, the thing I love about other advertising channels like Facebook and Google, I can prove or disprove theories for a couple hundred bucks, right? And I think when you talk about building out your advertising strategy, I don't want to allocate a hundred thousand or a million dollars to something that may not work. And I, and I kind of think that's an archaic way of thinking and advertising. So uh, I believe in LinkedIn as a channel. I, I personally use it a lot. And I think it's basically serves as my Rolodex at this point in my life, but I'm probably the wrong guy to ask on the advertising side, although I do believe in the channel. 
And we have yet another question. Arsalan Khan, again, asks, digital leaders should align to business objectives, but sometimes lack of business IT alignment is due to culture, which is hard to change. And so I think that gets to the transformation aspect we were talking about earlier. And, and so let me extend that question and say, with the type of transformation you've, you've been discussing, does it come from the top down? Does it come from the bottom up? How do you, how do you drive it? I think the fact that we, we reference the business IT relationship is something that should not be glazed over because, again, something I was guilty of in my past, and I, and I try to remind myself and learn from my mistakes all the time, is treating your IT team as order takers, right? And I'm, again, extremely lucky. Um, Andy Wells is our, our CTO. And I think at first, it was sort of an interesting waltz to kind of learn where I started and he stopped and where he started and I stopped. But the, the reality is this. You cannot, as a digital leader, whatever your title may be, you cannot be, hey, CTO, uh, I need to do one-to-one marketing, install the solution. You can't do that, right? And I, and I think that that's where people make huge mistakes. And so the cultural answer to your question, Michael, is really this idea of collaboration at the top, but also buy-in and implementation from the bottom. So I'll give you another real example. I referenced our relationship with Gladly. Gladly is a customer service platform. The people that are going to use that platform are our call center agents. So when we were doing the evaluation of the platform, it wasn't just you know me and a CTO sitting in a room and saying like, wow, this platform looks great. We had call center agents involved in that, right? Because I think we, we lose sight at times because we have all these huge, amazing gadgets that allow us to do amazing things. Who is actually going to use it, right? Who's going to be the person pulling the levers in your ESP? Who's going to be the person you know, using Visual Data Studio to analyze things? Don't drive initiatives from the top down. You have to have buy-in, right? You have to have everybody seeing the same thing at the top and feel good that they're collaborating. But the evaluation of all these technologies and, and, and changes you're going to make, make sure to involve the people who are actually going to use the damn thing. And I think it's an area that we, we forget about sometimes and get a little too much gravitas because of our titles. Is that a cultural attribute at Samsonite or is that your... Yeah, and I would go one step farther. Um, I know I feel very comfortable saying this. I think Kyle, our CEO, and Rez, our CFO, we feel comfortable saying this. I don't think anything's really out of bounds in our company, right? I think we have, we, we are very much a company founded on the golden rule. We, we always talk about this idea of do unto others, others do unto you. But the way we put it into practice is, I, if a retail store associated to me, like we have a store at Bellevue Square, it's about you know 10 miles that way. If they emailed me and said, hey, I hate this about the website, my reaction is not going to be, oh, well, who are you? You're not on the digital part. My, my reaction is going to be like, this is someone who talks to customers live all day, every day. I need to listen. And so I think that is the cultural, this idea of transparency. Like transparency is a word that's overused, but just having people that are willing to reach out to me and tell me what they think we can do better is, is sort of the coolest part of our, of our company. Where does innovation fit into all of this? Because obviously in the nature of innovation is change, doing things differently than we did before. I think innovation is, an, is a tricky thing, right? Because done properly, innovation in a, in a tactical way means you're investing in something now that may change over time. And so that's risky, right? Because you put that in a P&L form, you're spending money and you're not making money instantly. People don't like that, right? Like we all like to make money all the time and that's the way we are. But in our company, the reason I'm talking to you from Voyager Capital here in Seattle, one of the things that, that we do that I think every company should think about is we have relationships with around 10 venture capital companies in the United States, about five in Asia, about 10 in Europe, and we're still working on kind of getting our network in Latin America. And I basically have those relationships because I want to know where they're spending their money. 
right? I want to know what they see as investments because th these these companies are predicated on the idea of predicting the next big thing. And so I want to see their their technology pipeline all the time, right? So Eric here at Voyager can call me and be like, hey, we just invest in this company. Do you want to meet the CEO? Um, we have a relationship with Lightspeed down in, in San Francisco. I'm going to meet with Plug and Play in two weeks. So like that is a key to us. But the, the important takeaway there, Michael, is this. You cannot rely 100% internally on innovation. There are things happening around you. Like I'm not going to, Samsonite is not going to crack the code on autonomous vehicles, but autonomous vehicles may fundamentally change the way we can help customers. And so I think that that's important is that innovation cannot just be an internal capability, but you need to rely on people around you who are changing factors that are tertiary or tangential to your business, but may again, change your operational structure altogether. And for a company like Samsonite, what does innovation mean? Where are the focuses, focus points of innovation? So I think what we're best at on the innovation side is actually in product, right? And, and I think, again, going back to my point is of how this, this, you know, this isn't what I do, but we have a team uh, based outside of, in our factories in Belgium. And I reference our, our factory in Sesgard in Hungary. All they're doing is trying to make better stuff. <laughs> and and it, it sounds like, of course they are. Like, why aren't we all doing that? But I think that's where innovation should start. And the majority of our investment should go into making our products as good as they could possibly be. So I think that's really our core. And that's what we're best at. And then for our side, what we do is we try to innovate to support those efforts, right? So all the stuff I'm talking about, one-to-one -one marketing, all the stuff we're talking about in customer service with Gladly, it's really at the core of making our relationships with consumers who are using these products better. But if I was to pick one, Michael, I wouldn't point to, to our team. I would really point to Paul's team and, and the innovation team on the product side. Okay, fair enough. We're almost out of time. And so let me ask your advice on a few different topics. Number one, for companies that want to become a data-driven organization, what, what advice do you have for them? push data throughout the entire organization. Um, so one of my favorite statistics that I, I can't remember where I read it, but I think it was 80% eight zero of Airbnb employees pull their own data, right? So this idea of an analytics team and all oh, they're the only one looking at data, it's archaic and it needs to be done away with, right? So I think you need to push analytics throughout the entire organization as opposed to have it siloed. Um, one of the, the models that I've really liked, a friend of mine runs the analytics team at Starbucks and, and what he referred to his team as, he has basically mercenaries that bounce in and out of different departments to help, but it's not like the siloed team. They're basically at the, they're at the beck and call, if you will, of the marketing organization or the operations organization. And that's the way it should be, right? Because analysts are just that. They're analyzing something, but they need to have the full context of the business. So, so my advice would be, Michael, push your analysts downward, push your data downward and make it accessible to everybody. And what are the organizational conditions the, inside the company that will enable a company to actually make the kind of mindset shift that you're describing? So I do think it starts with tools. Um, and this is an area that, again, I, I gave a lot of credit to Andy, our, our CTO. Uh, like if you have the right tools, like if you have a Power BI interest, or if you have, we use Microsoft Teams, I, I'm like going to lose my millennial street cred here because MS Teams is such a good product. And I, I really wanted to stick my nose up at it because it wasn't Slack, right? Because that's what you're supposed to use when you're a millennial is Slack. But you know, these kind of tools is, is where it starts because if data requires you to write SQL to get to it, it's never going to permeate the organization. It's only going to be the small subset of people that can use it. And so I, I do think it starts with tools. And then it starts with a, a culture where you use analytics, right? So 
There's this old adage of always bring data to the party. I think that's the cultural fabric you have to use. And if you have a data-centric organization and you have the tools that allow people to access it, I, I think you'll find it's, it's fairly self-serving and in a lot of ways addictive. What about the sources of data? What's involved in figuring out the, the kinds of data that you should be looking at and then gathering that data? What's involved with that? I hope that's really kind of what uh, the, the senior leadership is for, right? Like it's, it's very easy to get access to data when it's all said and done. And that might sound anathema to some people, but it really is. Data is just a pipe of information. But you asked the question of what should you actually be looking at? I think that's where the senior leadership really needs to kind of sponsor that from a cultural perspective. And, and it goes back to a lot of the things we've talked about, which is moving beyond revenue and profit. You know, everybody knowing the business results are great, but everybody following the same sort of KPIs to get to that is much more important, right? And so I think that's where you need to have executive buy-in and you need to have people really identifying like, hey, our big goal is $4 billion in revenue this year. But if we don't focus on store traffic, net promoter score, blah, 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 we're never going to get there. So I think that should be a job of really kind of the, the senior team to drive it culturally. So you're talking, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you're just saying that the core strategies and the linkage of those core strategies to the metrics needs to be the senior management decision. Well, I think it needs to be driven and aligned with, but I, I would hope any good senior manager is is getting feedback from around the organization. But I think it's really more the cohesion of the message, Michael, where if you have people saying different things on what's being tried to accomplish, that's where you have a problem, which is why I think it needs to be aligned at the very top levels as, as well as kind of based on the feedback from anyone in the organization. So cohesion of the message around the types of uh, the types of goals that we're trying to achieve and the, the data, the types of data metrics that will demonstrate whether we're achieving those goals, that's a key part of using data effectively. Yeah, and if you think about it this way in a more kind of example form, if we say we wanna be the most customer-centric organization in our space, okay, it's, it's just sort of this almost throwaway comment that doesn't mean anything unless you say, how are we gonna prove we're doing that? Right. And that's where kind of measuring things like customer satisfaction, net promoter score and aligning on what those data points are that we are accomplishing this more visionary goal is important. If all you have is platitudes that sound like bumper stickers, you're probably not going to be very effective. But if you have actually an alignment on this is how we're going to hold ourselves accountable to these really big visionary statements. I think that's the, the key and that's the cohesion that I was referencing. Charlie, as we finish up, any final thoughts? You know, when we talk about this conversation, right? And we try to put a bow on it and, and put in a couple, three points. I would just say, don't underestimate your, your compensation plans. One, get alignment within your entire organization by talking to more people too. And don't get a big head as a digital leader, right? Like digital has been this uh, hot button topic where every organization on earth says they want the best CDO or the best digital transformation, but, but always be at service to your brand. And, and again, it's a, it's a lesson I had to learn the hard way and it sounds a little bit fluffy, but I do think that's the core takeaways from, from this. But I really enjoyed it, Michael. I appreciate you having me. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Charlie Cole. He is the Chief Digital Officer at Toomey and the Global Chief E-Commerce Officer at Samsonite. Charlie, thank you again for taking your time on a Friday afternoon to join us today. Totally my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Everybody, thank you for watching. Please subscribe on YouTube 
and hit the subscribe button on our website at the top. See, it says subscribe and subscribe to our newsletter and we'll send you all kinds of great stuff. We have amazing shows coming up. Check out CXOTalk.com and we will see you again next time.